my parents confronted me and they were like, Mike, what's going on? You get um, 10, 10 packages a day in the mail. You <laughs> stay up all night long. Your room's a mess. Like, drugs. It's obviously and they were drugs. like, are you like selling drugs? And I was like, no, I have a record label. I would just play a TV and get whatever channel I could get and run it through like a delay yeah, pedal. Yeah, yeah. And it, yeah. all of my peers growing up who were musicians were like, well, this era is coinciding with John discovering hallucinogens. Clearly, like <laughs> he's been trying, he's been trying to, he's been trying to sell them to me. And, and now he's playing a television. Hi, this is Jack Callahan, and you are listening to 400 Floor. You just heard from John Elliott and Mike Pollard. Where do I begin? John is maybe best known for his band Emeralds, an era-defining trio that took the underground electronic music scene by storm in the late 2000s. He also ran Editions Migos' sub-label Spectrum Spools, putting out numerous records from the American underground and more throughout the 2010s, and he continues to make solo music primarily under the moniker Imaginary Softwoods. Mike ran the Apocal label Arbor, putting out early releases for groups like Emeralds and the artists like James Ferraro and One Tricks Point Never. In addition to that, Mike started Nina alongside myself and Eric Farber. In this episode, we hope to illuminate not just John's and Mike's roots, but also the roots of Nina itself from deep within the Midwest underground of the early thousands. This episode has been edited from the full conversation, which is available at 400floor.com. That's the number 400 and the word floor.com. This is 400 Floor. Let's go on and get into it. Hey, John. Hey, Mike. Nice to see you guys. Nice to hear from you guys. Hey, Jack. Um, hey. So uh, I'll start with you, John. Um, what's your background? You grew up in Cleveland. Yeah, I'm born and raised in Cleveland, Ohio. Um, grew up in a suburb a little bit west of Cleveland. Stayed on the west side for my whole life, for the most part, except for a couple of stints, uh, one in New Mexico, a few other places. But for the most part, I've remained here. Been a musician in the area my whole life and have a small business here as well. How did you first get exposed to music? Like, were your parents, was your dad, or your mom into music? Like, was it through friends? Like, what was kind of that, like, introduction sort of into music and then also into more kind of underground DIY experimental music stuff? So my dad used to buy and sell records for extra money when I was a kid. And he... um he would, he was a really big Beatles collector. And so sometimes I'd go to the record shops with him. And uh, one of the ones that I used to go to was one that Chris Maddock, who plays his B mask, huh. used to go to a lot called Platterpus. Um, it was there that I saw some records that were really impressionable for the first time. Records that I knew because I think I was in like third grade at the time my dad used to take me. And um, I remember seeing a purple vinyl copy of Siamese Dream by the Smashing Pumpkins there. And um, I remember seeing, I don't know if this is real, but I swear I saw, it was like a clear vinyl 12 inch with glitter, Smells Like Teen Spirit single. Um, and so I, I would dig through the bins with my dad and then he had a record player set up in the basement. And instead of picking a record that was my favorite, 
I would just listen to all of them because I wanted to know what they were like. Um, my favorite was Listen by Flock of Seagulls. It has like a circuit board cover. Oh, yeah. And then I yeah. I also liked, um, I'm trying to think of some of the other ones I used to listen to. I like the Men at Work record, the first Men at Work record. Yeah. And then as I got older, in I think I was in sixth grade, there was like a big kind of street punk sort of like thing in Cleveland. There always kind of was um, like, a, like a garage rock type of scene. And yeah. a girl in my class's older brother had a band called Solid State Ignition and they made a seven inch. And I bought the seven inch at school and took it home and listened to it. Um, And then I was like, oh, wow, I've always had access to this record player, but I didn't ever think that there would come a time in my life where I'd be getting records from people that were just a couple degrees of separation away from me that I could take the, I could get these records and uh, take them home and listen to them. So then I got into punk music and going to local shows. And I think, you know, being 11 or 12 or 13 years old, if you went to the merchandise table back then, the vinyl was always cheaper than the CDs. So I would always buy the seven inch for a couple dollars. Uh, and then I collected those and, and records. A lot of them I wish I still had because I probably could have sold them for a lot of money now, but I, I just don't have them. Um, once I was old enough to get into other punk music, I just hawked all my dad's records too that some of them were probably worth some good money because by the time I was a teenager, he didn't really care about his records anymore and he just gave them to me anyway. Yep. But another yep. cool record that I found in my dad's collection, the Peter Lochner record. Yeah. Um, yeah. And wow. I, and That's so, so some, yeah, some like local. My dad went wow. to high school with him. He was only a couple years no younger than way. him. Yeah. Wow. So that's, that's see that. Hey man, that's, that's why we're doing this this podcast man that's amazing i had no idea yeah he signed my aunt's yearbook um because they, they <laughs> oh were actually they, they were actually closer friends my aunt cassie wow. and peter lochner were were homies but my dad wow. my dad always thought he was kind of an asshole because <laughs> he said that he was blind drunk at school all the time <gasps> and oh. um i mean he died when he was like 24 30, or something four no, he oh, was like he 20 20 jesus yeah. From, yeah, yeah, from yeah. drugs and oh, booze. Um, oh, oh. But he said he just like would spam my dad with Velvet Underground info. Like he was just so obsessed with wow. the Velvet Underground, just like would not shut up about them. Um, wow. And my dad wasn't much of a Velvet's guy. But um, yeah. As I got older, got into punk music. Um, yeah. There were a couple local bands that were more on the fringes, they were more extreme. There was a venue called Speaking Tongues, which was. Um, I found out later run by this guy, Ralph Hausman, who was very, um, he was like a mentor to me and very like formative. I learned yeah. a lot. I learned a lot from Ralph, but he had this venue that I used to go to. It was called speaking tongues. And that's where like all the, at the time, the kind of fringe early aughts type of hardcore post nonsense screamo shit. Um, yeah. Party of Helicopters used to play there. Um, yeah. I used to see um, Forstella Ford played and uh, yeah. all that kind of stuff. So once I um, started getting into that stuff, I uh, really felt like I was finding out new stuff. The Locust 
some of the three one G artists yeah. that were coming sure. around that time. That was my first experience with mail order. I um yeah, right. I saved my dough and got. I was working at a ice cream shop, and then I sent a money order to three one G to get the first Locust record. My parents yeah. hated yeah. it. They did not <laughs> like that music, and that's when I felt like I was finally getting into music that felt transgressive or different. Yes, um, totally. And I was like, now I'm finally finding stuff that's cool. Um, yeah, totally. And so then from there, I just kept going, kept going, kept going. The weirder rock stuff, Lightning Bolt, um, the White Mice, that kind of middle aughts, load record stuff. For sure. You know, then growing, Double Leopards. Yeah. It's actually a pretty logical progression if you think about it. I mean, that was definitely my progression in a very similar way like dad's record collection into like punk stuff into weirder punk stuff that then crossed over with like electronic music in a way and then like onward and upward but yes i think like that's that's definitely like a especially like people our age and a little and older mm -hmm. i guess like of growing up with like boomer rock and roll or parents right that being the kind of like standard like from which everything is based on right there like was, now i think it's t i think it's different for a lot of people with people 20 years younger being getting into music and it's like their parents maybe didn't grow up with rock and roll at all you know yeah like, or like which is or like silver chair it's or funny. <laughs> like yeah, yeah exactly um, yeah, yeah yeah something else that yeah, is pretty noteworthy is there was one yeah. the band nine shocks terror who are famous in cleveland and yes. elsewhere if you yes. if you know good music um Yes. Their name was around so often and so frequently on flyers that I was convinced that I had to see them. And they were playing a benefit yeah. show with Cider and the Darvisets. And oh, yeah. I was, oh, only, I was in the ninth grade Darvisets. and no one would Amazing. go to the show with me. And so Amazing. my dad offered to drive me and wait in the car. Wow. So, Amazing. So, he, so for like three hours. He let me go in without looking lame, without my dad. And that's sweet. The show oh, was completely insane. I got shot with a Roman candle. Yeah. Um, were people like tearing the ceiling tiling yeah, it was, tiles it was, off the It was know, like, insane. And I was just. I got shot with the Roman candle at an inmate show once. Yeah. I got hit with a front door at an inmate show, a wooden front door. <laughs> just stupid. Yes. Oh. Yes. But um yeah, my I feel like my progression of getting into these things has been pretty like I said it's been pretty logical and straightforward for considering yeah. what it is. Well, I think that's that's a good segue for origin stories of like so Mike, you grew up you grew up outside of Chicago. What was your kind of upbringing and like getting into music like? Yeah, I'd say um so I'm from suburbs of Chicago southwest about 25 minutes outside the city. Um I think I first got introduced to music through my cousin who lived with my family um when I was like 9 or 10 and he had compact computer with a CD burner 
and Napster and uh, taught me how to use IRC um, and like chat rooms and stuff. So my introduction to music was really kind of like through digging the internet. And I think it probably started with like looking up stuff in skateboard magazines that like guys recommended as stuff they liked. And then like looking up uh, and then using IRC to download skateboard videos and then waiting for the end credits and seeing what the songs were and then downloading each track one by one and then like burning the CD of the soundtrack to the skate video. Mm -hmm. So I had that for... um, Black Label, Label Kills, I remember. Um, America, this is America. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, America Yellow, uh, Blind Video Days. And, and so these were all these kind of things where I would also use like um, Photoshop and like make my own jewel cases and Amazing. covers and stuff. Amazing. Uh, very industrious, got, Mike. You've always been very industrious, yeah. it seems like. Not shocking. Not shocking. Just making, yeah. just making guess, things. Using, I mean, when I, I remember when I was like five, I got greeting card maker for Christmas and I would just make uh, little greeting cards for no reason, like a comic or like an <laughs> online, like a digital little like card. Amazing. Greetings. Um, in like second or third grade, made a Titanic zine with this girl uh, wow. in my class that nice. we sold for like five bucks or whatever. Holy shit. Um, so yeah, I would say like that, I don't know, digging online. And then like I was, my dad had records. They don't sound like they were as good as your dad's records. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think eighth grade graduation, I got a record player. And that kind of began, you know, I'd go to Reckless in Chicago, I would go to Dave's on Clark Street. Mm-hmm. Um, Dave's always had pretty good kind of like stuff that would come up on Pitchfork. Seemed like I remember yeah. getting like um, those Paw Tracks records there. Yeah. Oh, cool. Um, I'm, go- I'm going full honesty here. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> That's good stuff. There's some good stuff. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, here Comes the Indian or whatever they call it now. Yeah. 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 Um, <laughs> And yeah, I think the first record I remember buying at Reckless was the um, Red Crayola Parable of Arabelle Land, clear, wow. clear red, definitely. Back to How Cleveland. Old were you? Um, Thirteen. Thirteen. God. Yeah. Um, and I would say like around that time, um, kind of like using message boards online, the Sonic Youth message board. Mm-hmm. Uh, Animal Collective message board got kind of connected to more kind of like internet communities around music. Oh yeah, I, uh, there was uh, Viva La Vinyl. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, totally. These are words I haven't thought of in yeah, a really yeah, long yeah. time. Fifteen but so, years. But so yeah, I think it, there's like this kind of trajectory from like using the internet to find like any music, yeah. and right. then getting into physical kind of like records uh, and then kind of like finding the way that they met up together, which would be like, you know, uh, small run labels. Uh, I think like the first kind of mail order experience was probably marriage records kind of came through from, 
probably trying to get something by Thanksgiving after seeing oh, yeah. something related to Mount Erie microphones. Wow. Yeah. Um, and then very quickly, I think at marriage, there was something like on Not Not Fun, like a compilation maybe oh. that had Yellow Swans. And then Yellow Swans was the gateway into basically everything else So the uh, thing, very quickly. That, that, that's so funny that you say that to me because I'm probably, I'm 38, you're what, 32, 33? 32, yeah. yeah. So people in your age group, for whatever reason, it really seems like the Yellow Swans was the way in for those people. It was, it was an early, that yeah. was an early noise show for me. And then from people, you know, the Shoo Shoo connection yeah. as well. Yeah, like. Totally. And then for people my age, it seems like it's either Wolf Eyes or Nautical Almanac. It's one of those two. Yeah. And totally. for whatever reason, just a few people, like people just a little younger than me, it's always the Yellow Swans. Well, yeah. so this is, this is funny because I remember the first um, time I bought records on eBay from a, one seller uh, who I think was in New York. There was the uh, Yellow Swans record with all the kind of like muscle men. I think it was a one-sided oh, record. Oh, yeah. And then, I, and then I also got um, a Nautical Almanac record from him. Uh, did you know what, did you know that was Nautical like, Almanac or did you just like get it? In that was like looking at what else the guy had, just seeing like what was like cheap enough and like looked, looked yeah, at what totally. looked cool. And then that began a pretty big um, addiction to buying records right. online. Yeah. Um, for me, yeah, pre, pre discogs or like early discogs. It was strange because me and Mark and Steve, all my Emeralds buddies, we would we would go to like see all the local music and try to go to like whatever the most far out thing we could find was. And um, we were we were just like on the cusp of getting into like some really far out stuff. And we went to see Nautical Almanac on their Cover the Earth tour in a snowstorm. I think we were like one of five people there. And wow. with Max Eisenberg on drums. On drums, and let, yeah. And let me yeah, tell totally. you, they were at the peak of their powers. It, to this day, it was yeah. one of the most like, none of the audio was lining up with what I was looking at. <laughs> like somehow, <laughs> like none of it, like it was just so disorienting and amazing to see. And then- yeah. From there, it really, everything kind of, our minds were like open, but just seeing them yep. play in that era was, was amazing. It, they were unbelievably yep. cool. Like really good band to see. Um, well, actually, could, could we go, go, th go on that? And could you talk about like how you first met? uh like steve and mark and like how you got or i mean i guess there's probably a lot in between from where from at the point at which you left we switched over to mike and from there like how did you then start before even meeting them uh how did you sort of actually like get involved coming from the punk scene get involved in more of like the noise scene like that transition well it's funny, I've, Emeralds is one of the bands that we've actually all known each other, with the exception of Mark and Steve, who met after high school. I've, me and Steve went to kindergarten together. Wow. Um, and we probably went to birthday parties growing up together, but we didn't really start hanging out until after high school. And then yeah. I've known Mark since I was in like the sixth grade. He grew up a city over from us, and he was also a guitar player. So me and Mark would 
playing punk bands together. Um, but when we started working on experimental music, before Emeralds, there was a band called the Fance Alliance. And even before the Fance Alliance, there was a band called the Leaflets and the Fancies, which was... <laughs> That's a good name. <laughs> which was me and Steve and Eric from the Fance Alliance. And we yeah. started playing <laughs> on the bills of all the punk shows, mostly the punk shows that we would play. And all we did was we would play television sets, or I guess I was the only one playing a television set, and Steve and Eric <laughs> would drag their PCs out, and Steve would do like audio mulch patches on a PC. <sighs> And I would just play like a de- like a desk like a desktop like a fucking land party on stage. Yeah, 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 and, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and and you would play a computer like uh, John Cage playing a radio. Or something? I would just play a TV and get whatever channel I could get and run it through like a delay yeah, pedal. Yeah, yeah. And it yeah, all of my peers growing up who were musicians were like, "Well, this era is coinciding with John discovering." hallucinogens clearly like <laughs> he's been trying he's been trying to he's been trying to sell them to me and and now he's playing a television but um so we we started going in this other direction that not a lot of other people in Cleveland were doing there were like noisy rock bands but as far as noise artists or people that were doing avant-garde stuff there was one guy um who used to go by Steve Dracula, George V. Browns, and then <laughs> Flux Monkey, Bob Drake, who is uh Oh yeah. He was playing like a frack rack synthesizer like yeah. in 2004 or 5. Like he was an OG. Um yeah. But outside of that, there wasn't really anything going on, so we kind of created our own scene. The thing that was so helpful about the internet at the time was like and with with anybody that's trying to do this is that if there's not a scene in your hometown, like you could make music to export and um, yep. people think there's a scene there. Like yep. we would just make up a band name, get a duo, get a new configuration. That's a band. Like that's how Mist was, you know, like me and Sam and like, yeah, yeah, there was yeah, totally. Tusco Terror, who is like the big, the big um, influence on everybody that was like, once we found out about Tusco Terror and the, ho- the house shows they were doing in Akron, it was just like, yeah. Right. So, like, I, re- I remember finding out about Michigan noise stuff from looking at the Hanson Records website and looking at the tape descriptions. And then the tapes were, like, usually sold out or I could There was, like, not a way for me to access them, I remember. So you would, you would download them and then, like... Uh, like, just every iteration of everything. Like, the labels... Back then, the label was such a good way of finding out what you were going to be getting into. Tronics, yeah, Hanson, Chondritic. Yeah. I think that that way of talking about labels as being like a kind of entry point is kind of super important. Huge, um, totally. Huge. Because, especially when you kind of talk about like the introduction of the internet and like needing a kind of port of entry to dig online versus like, you know, the record store would be your kind of like entrance way to yeah. physical music. And you would have like the guys at the store that you liked and you could trust the way they stocked stuff or there were certain sections that you like knew to look in. Right. Um, but online you need like a different kind of entry point. And I think um, labels definitely did that. I would say 
you know, for me, there was handful of labels that I quickly became introduced to. And I would say that that like, I don't know the, the way I remember it and it might not be correct is like probably within like one or two months of making a mail order purchase, I was starting Arbor, like sending out <laughs> emails, like just realizing like it was as easy to make and release music as it was to purchase it. Right. Almost like I would be emailing the same guy to be like, Hey, can I buy this of yours? And then it's like, Hey, I'm putting together a compilation. Do you want to put a track on it? it was such an and I think part time. of that was like, yeah, yeah. totally. Like totally. it was like, I wanted to hear more music by people. Right. And yeah. if I'd heard all of that was accessible, then I was just like, email, can them. you send me tracks before you send them to anyone else? And That's then I'll burn them on a CD and I mean, them and it's amazing you that you, them on a you were dealing <laughs> with people like that you were into such like underground music that it's like I mean it's an experience that not a lot of people have that we've all of us have been able to have in different ways of like getting into music that we we really like and it being so underground that the person has their email not only do they have their email available but when they actually respond to your emails and then they actually are like extremely excited that someone is interested in their music and are like more than happy to like send that out. And it's just like a, it's like a personal connection to music that like not, not everybody has. And it's like, if you've had it, you understand like the power right. <laughs> of music and the power of community. Especially in a post COVID world. The other thing is yeah, that like definitely. people forget and time moves weird and it kind of erases itself as it goes forward. People forget how, uncertain and weird those times were from 9-11 yeah. going through the Bush yeah. administration into those Obama years. That era in America, it was one of the few times that it felt like and probably the last time ever in our lifetime where it just doesn't feel surveillance heavy. It felt like America was pointing outward at everybody else after 9-11 for almost, you know, I mean, forever, obviously. But at that time, it seemed yeah. like everything that happened at home was happening in America was like, it felt like the country was wide open in a lot of ways. It felt yeah. like, you know, getting into a van and going on a two-week or three-week tour with your buddies was totally doable. It was wide open, I would say. Like, the kind of stuff that we're talking about, I think, is like using Web1 era internet like a uh, like a mailed newsletter right. or like sending postcards around and stuff. Yeah. And it was like just a little bit faster, but it wasn't immediate yeah. yet. So there was still like... Um, like a period of anticipation right. and like a period of like reflection and, and like waiting. And this is something. Yeah. And most of it was being I, executed um, in real life. Yeah, 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 yeah. exactly. Yeah. I, I big, think that, uh, big difference from. I think that there was a time, especially thinking about like mail order, like, you know, we're talking about time before SoundCloud and before easy kind of like previews of new music. And you think about like, you read this little description of something, you send five or six dollars in the mail or through PayPal, and then you wait one week or three months if you're buying it from James Ferraro. Right. And you kind of just have <laughs> that waiting. description. <laughs> <laughs> you just have that description 
and you kind of, you like think of, you like hear the music in your head, knowing what you know about the artist from before and reading the description. And I don't know that I think there's something really productive, um, creatively in that kind of disconnect between like wanting to experience something and then like getting it delivered. Mm -hmm. Um, absolutely. Like anticipation is really productive. And I think that that is something that kept, um, I don't know, that kept that kind of ecosystem together. Yeah, definitely. Um, And let's be real, like not getting something you order sometimes is kind of cool if you think about it because, (laughs) because like it was all being done by hand. Like I'm not advocating ripping people off and taking orders and not sending them anything now, but like, I mean, of course not. It just, it just felt very, Who who would do that? It just felt very, um, but that's Wild West. That's wide open. That's what you know? I'm saying. You send True. some guy, you send a guy ten dollars in the mail. Right. There's kind of no recourse. And let, let's be honest, all, it was who's awesome. going to go through like a fraud, like you know, right? Uh, and then being like, a, and then being nobody's like, doing that. Like your buddy across town got it, but you didn't. And it was like, man, yeah, yeah, yeah. got lost like, in the mail. Sorry, man. Or like yeah. your friend <laughs> saw them on tour, yeah. and 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 he lived in a different city, and he told you like he got the last one, and there's none left. And yeah, you yeah, yeah. Know that you had, <laughs> you're like, yeah, you, you can't you, buy it anymore. Sorry, you sent them money for it before the tour, yeah, and yeah. they just yeah, used yeah, that money to fund the tour, and then they double yeah, sold exactly. everything. And yeah. <laughs> Jeff and I have run into that recently of the, the selling out of merch on tour and coming home to mail order, and you just gotta. Although fortunately, we actually pay them their money back, but not everybody has to be that. Uh, you know, not everybody's so generous. Exactly. Mike, can you talk a little bit about sort of what we were going with with John of like from getting into that music and the internet and mail order, et cetera, and then like the foundation of your label, Arbor, and like how that kind of came about and like the trajectory. One of the greatest labels ever, by the way. Hell yeah. Come on. For real. Um, And I'm not the only, I hear that all the time from people. They're like, you're so lucky you had, you had an an Arbor release that's sweet. Um. I'm blushing. Um, the um, I don't know. Like I said, like a little bit ago, like it really seemed pretty immediate. The switch from realizing that I could contact people to buy their music from them, to being able to message them and ask them for tracks. The first Arbor release was a compilation. Probably took about six months to put together. Um, I remember going to like a probably first kind of like house show, noise show. Um, How old were you at that time? 14 or 15. Yeah. It was at Mr. City in Chicago, which was uh, the band Coffs House. Oh, yeah, totally. And it was a Raccoon show. <laughs> and Man, I they remember... Were, they were good. Me- yeah. Oh, yes. I remember meeting them and kind of like pushing them to make sure that they turned in a track because... Because oh, you had already contacted them. I had like, hey, contacted I remember. them to talk to them. Amazing. Um, but I think that was also like the time when they realized um, that they were talking to like a kid. 
Which I, <laughs> I'm sure you've had a lot of those moments. Which I in the think early was, um, yeah, it's like nobody uh, on the internet, nobody knows you're a kid. I think that's beautiful. That was, uh, exactly. I think I benefited from that one. Amazing. Um, and then I think there were sometimes like, um, I think I did a seven inch with Carl Bauer, Axolotl, and there was at some point where like we got into a fight over email, and then I forget why, and then I think when he found out that I was like 16 then he like apologized because oh. he <laughs> i don't know just i, I guess That's... i hadn't developed all the proper like manners or ways to observe, right 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 like, and so he was just like what the fuck and, is wrong with yeah, this i think guy. he thought he was like getting screwed by a <laughs> jerk and not like uh, an ignorant instead of a 16 year old yeah. who's like yeah doesn't know the doesn't um, know the ways amazing but yeah no there's i'd say the transition to being into music and releasing it yeah. was like so small. Um, yeah. I remember it was probably like a couple months in, a couple releases in, there was compilation, there was, oh, uh, Rogue Door, three inch CDR. Oh yeah, um, Rogue There was this um, Horsehead. This guy, Horsehead is now in um, uh, oh, yeah. Goth Boy Click Amazing. or whatever. Uh, Lil Peeps, Lil Peeps thing. Like, thing. No This way. kid, Chris Thorne, Horsehead, who was the third release on Arbor. And you, st- you, you still st- are sort of in touch with him? Like, didn't you reach out to him? Oh, like, I, I um, DM'd him on Instagram yeah. to um, check out Nina, but he never responded. My goth um, boy so click anyone man. out there, if you have contact to Chris Thorne, yeah, Horsehead, Horsehead, would love to um, reminisce, maybe yeah, bring him please. on this podcast. Absolutely. Please uh, get in touch. Probably a story Horsehead, in there. please reach out. Um, uh, but so um, my parents confronted me. And they were like, Mike, what's going on? You get um, 10, 10 packages a day in the mail. You <laughs> stay up all night long. Your room's a mess. Drugs. Like, it's and obviously And they drugs. were like, are you like s- selling drugs? And I was like, no, I have a record label. So it's kind of like selling drugs. So what was the reaction? <laughs> That's amazing. That? I mean, I assume they were probably relieved. They were definitely relieved. <laughs> yeah. yeah. They were supportive. Cool. Amazing. Yeah. What was the first, like... How was the, because the transition from putting out CDRs to actually pressing vinyl is kind of big. How did like, how was that? How did you get into that? Or like the first time? That's, um, I had always wanted to, and I think it was very like precious or something. Like it was like, it's got to be the right one. It's got to something. I think that the first one was a one-sided. No, that was maybe second, second. Uh, the Ooh. first one was we got a we got a Rogue Arbor Door, historian on Rogue our hands. Door Haunted Castle uh, Swords for Plowshares. Wow, um, collaborative castle. Wow. thing. Um, Damn, that I still got the warm record. Cool. That's a good one. Yeah, yeah, I remember silk screening that in the Amazing. basement. Wow, you silk screened it. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that you. It's pretty shitty, probably. Wow. The, it's, uh, I think I have a couple that are sticky. Couple. It's like puffy. I could never get the consistency right. Right, right, right. I was no Sean Reed. Did you? I did you screen print? I have the um, the uh, Privy Seals, uh, God willing, uh, twelve inch. Ren did that. Ren did that. Okay, yeah. I was gonna say it's like a. There's a funny story with that one. Yeah, that's the one where I was a freshman in college, yeah, and Ren was like, "I have the records. I'm driving down," and yeah. I was not in town. Um, so I told him to drop it off at hospital, which was around the corner from my <laughs> dorm. And then I forgot to ask Dom if that was okay. 
And then um, he was very, very angry at me. Wow. Very, very angry. Yeah. Jeez. Dis- on, I, it was disrespectful looking back on it. But. Well, you know, well, it's just hard. Yeah, this was like 2008, 2009. Yeah. That was like, peak noise conservatism, too. They were not trying to let any more right. people in. It was very conservative. Lots of very. Right, right, um, right. Really? Wait, talk a little. Yeah, talk, talk about that. Yeah. Talk a little more about that. About actually. noise conservatism. Yeah, yes. please. Well, I, I was, this is a free form. I was working you know, with Mark. I was working with McGuire the other day, and he told me that Shane from Lamb's Bread once told him when I wasn't there. He's like, "There's some people that want to kill John," and I was just. <laughs> <laughs> One of my favorite um, things ever that I probably think of on a weekly basis is just the uh, the title. Bullshit, boring drone band. Hell yes. That's something that, that the, yeah. the Haunted Castle gal said right after we finished the set. <laughs> and and it comes together. Made, Amazing. Wow. Then we went home and made a CDR for Olsen and named it that. There's another story. It was the same with yeah, what happened, the Emeralds record, yeah. because yeah. we had been at the time. I think a lot of the the noise scene record label people, even if they didn't like us, realized they could probably sell some of our records. So yeah. we started getting a lot of offers at once, and um, yep. we had an offer from Carlos from No Fun, and mm. then we also had an offer from Dillaway. And I think the offer from Dillaway came in just like a little bit before Carlos, but I think Carlos was more prepared to do the record. Um, yeah. But we ended up doing Solar Bridge with Dillaway. And um, yeah. I'm not sure if that was ever going to be for Carlos, but he sent us an email after Solar Bridge was announced and it said, Emeralds LP on no fun dash what happened? question mark and so so we made another record for him and called it what happened yeah you're like there it is yeah not 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 a question anymore not a question what happened but what happened this is what happened happened. exactly Um, not like not like hillary clinton's biography oh my god right um yeah so there was that but emeralds was we were never um it didn't seem like we could be put in any kind of box. Like it felt really good to be able to be all over the place. And at the same time, people were like, you know, it felt like everything we did was upsetting to someone making, yeah. having a melody was like caused outrage. Um, I think that uh, we're getting well, to like an interesting time period. Yeah, totally. I think sure. 2008, nine, 2008, 10. Yeah. Um, I think we had, all known, we all knew each other at that point. Yeah, I think it, I'm. Yeah, I met John in 2009 when Mist played my basement in Western Mass. That Ben book. Oh wow! Yeah, first Mist gig out there. That was yeah, yeah. that was the first time I met all you guys actually. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Mike and I met in 2007 at the St. Louis Noise Fest. Noise Fest TL. Oh my gosh! And Just a little background, so. You know. I feel like we probably met at 
flower shop. You got it at the flower Chicago. shop. Nice. Like what year was that? 2007, maybe. That yeah. was on the yeah Birds With and Emeralds birds tour. Of birds oh, yeah. of Delay. That was Emeralds? the most oh, fun I've ever had on a tour in my whole life. Was that tour? Wow. Amazing. It was amazing. Fun, fun people. But I think I think 2008, 9, 10 is when a lot of stuff really changed. This kind of stuff yeah. we were talking about like 20 minutes ago. Sure. Um, iPhone, Twitter. Was gone. Yeah, yeah. Insta. And I wonder, yep. I don't know. I haven't really thought about it in a while. Yeah. But just kind of wondering, because there was this sense that like, uh, I guess people were paying more attention. People with more... Yeah. You know, like maybe like magazines or like, you know, stuff was spreading more. It wasn't just these kind of uh, like you need to know where to find the info yeah. to find the music. Like mm -hmm. the music was actually kind of like breaking out. Or There were some breakout successes. On Emeralds was one of them. Yeah, 2010, totally. the year the year drone yeah. broke. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. And mm -hmm. I, I, I don't know. I think it's I'm interested in kind of trying to. No, think definitely. Through that a little well, bit. there's definitely. I mean, I could see a couple things with that. It's like obviously the iPhone, um, rise of social media, and the decline of the forums. Definitely. You know, like the rise of like an open, a non-exclusive, uh, non-focused uh, uh, place of discourse, which would be social media versus the forum, which is a niche, closed network. You know, which is. But no. were were noise people hanging out on Facebook in 2010 in like a regional in like a Seems kind of like, like they noise are now more than they were back then. Well, yeah, because they're all I, in their 40s and yeah. 50s. Now. That's kind of that's kind of what I mean. Like, I kind of don't think that that people from these, you know, like this kind of world where success was maybe selling um, 40 copies of four tapes every two months or something right. and like very active kind of like hands-on mail order stuff, hands-on yeah. assembly of records and tapes mm -hmm. and CDs yeah. to like, even just, I think things became getting produced at a higher yeah. price point. Yeah, um, that's true. And three to the 500 kind of records selling quickly. Yeah. 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 And I wonder, I don't know, I guess that's the kind of part that I want to like. No, it's true. Think I, about and and yeah, to, to add on to that, like what, what happened to the ability to post about a release? Because we know so many people who did it, Mike included, and you know any of these people where you, I, where they would pay their rents and it completely fund their their lives by just posting that they're releasing an edition of fifty cassette or edition of a hundred cassette and it would sell instantaneously. But that that translated for a while, like 2010, yes. 2011, yeah. Yeah. when I was putting out like OPN records, James right. Ferraro records, that was yeah. still happening that way. Right. And so there would be like a month where I would put out three or four records and within like three or four days how would I would, you post I would have twenty those? grand go through my PayPal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How and would you would it be through just through your site? Or would you post would be on the a, forum or Forum posts, uh, the, uh, is it I Hate Music or yeah, I, hate I Hate Noise? Music, or, yeah, I, I uh, H M I Hate Music uh, um, board. Yeah. And then just an email list. Every person who Every, bought yeah. something would go on a list. Totally. And that list would get hit. And there would be like these kind of monthly, um, whatever, batches. Yeah. Um, and it definitely got like pretty intense for a while. I feel like. 
the sec the um, distributors played like a kind of role. Like people started buying, like with like a record from James or Dan. More than just, just all, from it would just all sales. go to distributors yeah, right totally. away. Who would be the distributors? Forte in the UK, yeah. Revolver, and Forced Exposure would be the big ones. But yeah. then there would also be Volcanic Tongue, yeah. Murmur Oglu. Yeah. Um, but it would be a kind of thing where like most of the run of the record would go to these the people bigger. who would put them in shops and yeah. then not really pay you and then one day mail them all back to you. Right. Um, it's, it's psychotic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, to so this I day, think like, it continues you know, to this day. The experimental music scene was playing with leverage. Yep. Yeah, it sure yeah, 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 truly totally. was. It really was. <laughs> yeah, totally. But it's, it's, All came crashing down, obviously. It's strange but. now because it seems like we're, <laughs> like, with... Oh, it's, so hard, it's so hard to get a feel for it because I can make a physical edition of 100 or 200 things, 300 things, and I can blow through them pretty... I can pretty confidently sell some 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 of my own music but yeah you can still i could see i i see that whenever you launch stuff you you have a pretty a pretty d- devoted base right I'm, you know I'm when you put out super, a tape or super whatever. grateful for my listeners i'm super happy that i have people who are still checking me out because i work really hard on my stuff yeah. still and i like yeah, i what definitely. i what i do is music like that's what i love to do um yeah but it, it's it really seems like there's kind of a ceiling and like it just yeah. feels like with younger people they just like maybe it's not they don't know where to buy it or how to find it but it it really feels like there's a barrier uh, uh of people of trying to get people to learn about you of like trying to like yeah. find a different audience like is there any audience like is there any kind of definable audience now or yeah. Yeah. Do people just get fed by algorithms? And then um, but that just connects back to the thing right before the kind of like 2008, 9, 10 moment. I think like something that happened then was people started buying ads in the wire. Sure. And yeah. that changed the direction. That changed things from being like the best you could hope for would be like in bull tongue. Right. Or like yeah. the or like the size matters column of the wire yeah. to getting like an actual full <laughs> review or like a spread, a spread or yeah. a cover story or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And that definitely like took the shit out of the Midwest. Big time. Yeah. And for sure. Yeah. I mean, it is crazy to see like it's like we've never really come back from that moment in terms of like the underground, at least the underground American scene. Like in terms of that being an option, you know, like right. we're still living in the wake of that. And I think that really profoundly affects the way people make music still, even in the quote unquote underground music scene or whatever that, especially like ex- electronic music, noise music, whatever you want right. to call it, like that people are still operating under mm. the principle that, well, maybe because, you know, uh, you know, is works with or whatever that if I, I'm a good enough boy. I can also, you know, get, you know, this level of success. And so I think that to an extent, it depends on the type of person and it depends on the type of music, the niche of it or whatever, that I still think a lot of people are kind of like operating with that in the background. And I do think it kind of can kind of poison it a little bit. Success you know? wasn't really part of the equation until yeah, it was. Exactly. And then... Absolutely. Like there was just a total whatsoever. phase change. Yes. It's, it's kind of like 
the iPhone moment, it's like there was this day where like the underground was not anymore. Yeah. Like it wasn't underground. And then, it was like all on the same media of communication with the whole world. Sure. And then That's true. Exactly. Especially with like Twitter and social media, you're constantly put next to these people who are not in any way doing the same thing as you and all you see are the metrics of like likes and reposts and or whatever. Right. And you're judging yourself against that constantly. I've always kind of felt like the um, like underground exists because you need to know like coordinates to find information yep. or stuff. Yep. So it's right. like it's like something in the back of a zine that has a address or a phone number or even an email address that you like hit up to get information. Mm -hmm. And there's this kind of like level of effort that involves like knowing the endpoints. But then yeah. when you get to the point where like, you know, you follow OPN and you follow Skin Graft and you follow Bruno Mars and all their information uh, outputs right are just all right next to each other, <laughs> you're dealing with like a flat, Level Flat, of information, yeah, exactly. which gets rid of the nuance, R and it that, gets rid of any that context. we were kind of thriving yeah. on absolutely. in the early two thousands. And it's um, the the internet has brought so much self awareness and so much, um, you know, of people feeling self conscious, and yeah, like you said, people measure it against likes and clicks, and but like, yeah, I remember being in a house with like, you know, you could what was it, Rai Yao at no fun fest. Didn't he just like eat celery? <laughs> he like ate snappy celery and it was like, everybody was going crazy. Yeah. God damn it. Yeah. No, it's true. It's, yeah. yeah th there was definitely a shift in that era. And, and like you said, it felt like a door closing. Um, it turned me off. Yeah. I understand. That was why, that was why I exited. Cause I got this feeling that yeah. like on one hand, I had been doing it since I was so young and it had kind of covered my like puberty and music. Sure. Like my taste was more or less fully like my development of taste was fully reflected in this kind of like label that had different paths at different points in time. Mm -hmm. You know, there's yeah. like kind of like singer songwriter stuff in the early days, yeah, <laughs> and, totally. uh, you know, like rock stuff, noise stuff. Yeah. Um, and I think at a certain point when I like became more aware of things outside of that activity, um, on the one hand, I wanted to like have a kind of, I wanted to grow up or something, right. like cut a tie with yeah. this thing that was like this developmental thing. But then also there was just this kind of sense where the pressure that I felt w that was being put on me um, as being like a springboard to... right more success but just that that was not kind of like where the interest was i didn't want to like turn this way of dealing with boredom at home as a 14 year old into like a kind of a big kind of like drone music business machine yeah or something yeah, yeah, yeah. and i kind of <laughs> felt like i felt like that's kind of like big drone yeah big drone i feel like that's that's kind of how it began to feel um yeah from artists or like otherwise. I mean, it was the same with was. Emeralds. We were, we were on yeah. tour from 2007 until we split. It was, yeah, we couldn't even, there was no room to breathe, to be able to be able to make an album. It's like, by the time 
it was getting later into our band, we were just touring. And then when we were home, yeah, we didn't really, we were just trying to regroup. It was, it was yeah. uh, definitely a whirlwind. It just like a, it just felt like a, like a grind. Like it just started becoming yeah. like not monotonous because it, it was amazing to be able to do that stuff. But it was just like, um, we were almost like stuck in this one mode I felt like I was no longer in control yeah. of. Yeah, maybe that's what I'm trying life, to say. It, it just didn't feel like we were like. It didn't feel like we could take time to make a record yeah. or or anything. At least that's how I was feeling yeah. too. I mean, I think a lot of people were kind of. I feeling felt like that a way. factory. Right. Yeah. John, do you feel like you were ever presented like maybe at the peak of like Emerald's success with a way to like make music your career for the rest of your life? You know, with doing like the Caribou tour right, or like, right. all, you know, or other stuff like, you know, with 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 like a path that like right. if you followed these steps that they told you to take, whoever they is, if there even is a they right. like that you could do this make a couple make some choices and be able to like make even a, me, a meager living off of sure. your music like continuing that path well as a band we probably could have we had um record label offers but I, I feel like we didn't really know how to approach the business aspect because whether we all would even admit it or not i think we all had different ideas of what we wanted our band to be like and like what we wanted to do with it um at the very least mark I feel like he could even still, if he wanted to, um, could make a living off just playing shows. And I know Steve does sound design and he, he, I know he does music full time. Mostly it's not easy for anybody. Um, but you know, we, we had big record, we had some like bigger record label offers, but I'm not so sure we could have made a record that was, I want to say palatable. I just, our music was, like at the time that we had our success, I feel like it like kind of like achieved like a peak. And then after that, you, but uh, Emeralds walked. So, um, who did oh, <laughs> the yeah. band who did the, uh, the, uh, yeah. the, the stranger things. Oh, yeah. Soundtrack so, yeah, so, those, so those fellows can run. Yeah. You know, and, and a lot yeah. like no one was, you know, a big thing with the noisy back then is like, there wasn't a lot of analog since, like people yeah. there weren't synth bands well, god yeah i mean like, that angle of it from then to now like 2008 I mean, to you know 2010 I mean, the, to the, 2020 the, that changed at the very least i wish one of these synth companies would just hire me on and let me just make youtube yeah, videos seriously. hey this is for anyone who's yeah exactly for uh, anyone who's listening that right can now. be arranged right yeah i hope so yeah it should be yeah but um, um you know that's such an in that's really interesting yeah, there was not a lot of synthesizer music back then. There was not. And but when there was, there was. Sure. And this is, like, something that's hitting on me is yeah. the way in which um, kind of, like, virality entered into the subconscious right. of the underground yeah, or something. Like, right. 
and I think that it was a little delayed to um, kind of like the internet in general. Like, I don't think people were actually aware of the way in which these memes, like analog synths right. or a certain concept of success yeah. were changing as these networks became closer together. I don't think people really realized how it was a thing. much of a... Yeah, it was definitely a like, thing. Like, hypnagogic pop was a psyop. What about Salem? Like, huh. Salem was a psyop. <laughs> Salem, yeah. They were a psyop. Salem definitely. is a psyop still. Definitely. Um, definitely. I really think the, the, the concept of the, the like is just... There's, if there isn't already a book or a, a paper on it, mm-hmm. it's that, that, is, that is something that truly like shifted culture and like sh- especially if, like for creative people right. and like the concept of doing things for the likes or well, whatever that's a, yeah that kind of twisted that's this kind of um you know earlier we were talking about like what does success look like yeah there weren't these kind of universally shared signifiers of public facing yes success oh yes. that they're like i'll give you a good example i'll give you a good example of yeah. one I, I was uh, talking with one of the record labels that I'm with and they were recently saying like, you know, we're going to do this record. And so we're going to come up with a game plan. Spotify offers a new service where if you take a royalty cut, less money per stream, they will supercharge whatever track they're going to try I and jam into the algo. And yes. then you get paid in clout essentially which is i feel like most people especially let's be real in the music scene people a lot of these people that have success or the perception of success are being paid in clout because they don't need the money and people that don't need the money generally have it coming from somewhere else and a lot of the people that do need money that want to do this for a living are going to struggle a lot harder with being paid in clout because it doesn't Yep. Pay the bills. Doesn't keep the lights on. No, that's, I mean, that's insane. And, and it's also like from the perspective of Spotify where um, them supercharging your track is like injecting it into passive streams. Like yeah, I know. Maybe, it, right. maybe at a point, yeah. like, like it's like you get the vanity metric of yeah. your that's numbers it. going up on your main page. Yeah. But you are probably not having more people know your name. As an artist, you know, no, it's, go- it's going not. on at like your local coffee shop or something, or like somebody's like studying, and, so that's and they're what, like talking to someone else, and that just comes on for three minutes, and they go on to something else, and it's not catching their attention. And even if they, even if it did, you no, know, people who listen to a lot of people who listen to music like that are not like they're not going to like pause it and be like, "What's this artist? I'm going to go look into their catalog or whatever." That's not the way people. Oh, you definitely. Know, one of the one of the most I, consume music. Right. One of the most I, like ironic things ever. I think ironic is the word. Like just like the dumbest thing ever is that my yeah. most popular track on Apple Music has over a million. Like I think it's like 1.3 million streams. But it's on a sleep yeah. playlist. So I was like, no one listened to it. <laughs> you know, and I'm just like, so they just jam this when everybody's in bed. Then no one listens to it. <laughs> it's it's six and a half hours into the sleep yeah, playlist. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's like four thirty in the morning. But that's like No, I I, I think I, Spotify is good for what it's good for, but it isn't good for people like you 
I don't think it's good for like, yeah. It's not. <laughs> it's not good for the ninety nine percent of artists that wish to 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 be. Heard. But it's good. It, it's good for like most people who use it to listen to music. Sure. It's good for artists that make a certain kind of music that's about catching someone's attention. Maybe they're like, oh, I know all these songs, but like, I don't know this one. What is this? Well, the, big, like, the big problem music? with that is, is that most of the time you're right, it's good for everybody except the artist who's making the music. It yeah. makes no sense that you get paid the same amount of money for a stream that like Bruno Mars does or something right. like yeah. that, that like, isn't where your kind of like music making practice in life, like began, there was never that kind of equivalence ever. And then technology, one size fits all kind of models, just make it so that regardless of your kind of consent or thoughts, you're basically being processed at the same level as everyone else, which yep. is, you know, you didn't necessarily, you don't really get to choose, no. which is kind and of- And that's the perfect, that's the exact, that's the, the, the same, the same thing of social media, of you being put on the same, your, your Twitter being put right next to Drake's Twitter, right. and you're both tweeting about your new record or whatever, <laughs> you know, or anything, or even not even, you right. don't even have to use Drake, you could just use someone. Yeah from the more independent music scene, but who has thousands, tens of thousands of followers and makes popular music. More than know. ever, music is either like very financially backed or it's not at all. It's, 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 it's yeah, almost totally. binary. There's, there's, you, you do not really find medium sized artists being funded by a label that would yeah. never happen. And that's just, that's, that's America right now. That's the shrinking middle class where you right. either have the people at the top or you have people who can't fucking afford to, you know, to, it's just the struggling, like that's where the Midwest was this beautiful thing for a certain time sure. where it's like somehow these like just very middle class people, people who do not have like intellectual parents, right. like other, you know, or whatever. And it, but somehow getting access to this culture that is like very extremely cutting edge or whatever. But like that, I feel like is harder and harder to come by now, oh, for you sure. know, just like in terms of like economics yeah. or class or whatever you want to say, you know, it's, it's, it's so stratified. Time to, uh, time to abandon all the platforms and uh, get back to what's real. What's really good. That's right. That's right. No, it's time. I'm really excited. I'm really excited to get my hub set up. I've been it's something I've been working on behind the scenes because for what, I want to do another record label. I want to do a, a post Spectrum Spools record label, and I'm still Amazing. trying to figure out um, exactly how it's going to be, what it's going to be, yeah. etc. Yeah. But I do not wish to put the music on streaming services. I wish for it Amazing. to just be on Nina. I love the idea of having a record label project where you have to go somewhere else entirely that you don't yep. normally go to find the music into there's an into intentional intention intentionality yeah, into and, it and to access it you have to go somewhere else i feel like especially people in our age group and maybe even a little bit younger than us are these these platforms just like have to die like i was just telling my uh, partner isabel the other day i was like i can't wait until I have to like look at Wikipedia to like mention Twitter to somebody and it'll be like, this was, this is what a retweet looked like, you know, like that, like 
it's going to be gone and it's going to be amazing. Anyways, I should split. Um, yeah, dude. Let's, John, let's thanks do it so again. much for talking with us. I'd love to yeah, be on again. I would love to. I would love to. We have to get deep I think into the Nina is, I, think is, I want to talk have, about Nina dude, more. Dude, we have a lot to talk about. Yeah, we do. Yeah. Dude, thank you, John. Awesome. Cool. Talk Great to you Jack. soon, good man. To see you, have Jack. a good, good night. Good to see you, Mike. Thanks to John and Mike for joining me to speak about their lives in music and beyond. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe to 400 Floor wherever you get your podcasts. To hear the raw and uncut version of this episode, plus much more bonus material, you can purchase it at 400floor.com. That's the number 400 and the word floor.com. 400 Floor is a podcast produced by Nina Protocol, where two musicians pair up to talk about their roots individually and together and reflect on the communities that shape them. We'll be back in a few weeks with another deep dive. Thanks for listening. <laughs>